Welcome to Move by Grace, the podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel in Cambridge, Ohio. Well, good morning, everybody, and happy Mother's Day. Great to be with you today in church. Hey, I want to remind you, at the end of the service, we have a special announcement uh, that we want to make for you, so make sure you hang on to the very end. I'm, I'm looking forward to giving that to you as well. We'll take your Bibles today and turn to Daniel chapter 9. Thank you again for worshiping with us today in this way. Trust me, you are loved, you are missed, and be assured, be assured, listen, God is still in control. He is still on the throne. Though mountains may crumble and sea billows roll, our God is still in control. So consider this, and don't don't miss this, that that this path that we are on right now, we need to view this as a missional time. A missional time where one can be on mission for Christ, sharing the love of Christ in deed and in word. Let that be the filter for your conversations this week. What would Jesus do? What would He say in this moment? Is my conversation... Is my post, is my video edifying Christ, and am I being missional in everything that I do? Well, for our encouragement from the Word today, I've entitled our message today, Questions and Answers and the Four Most Incredible Verses in the Bible. Questions and Answers and the Four Most Incredible Verses in the Bible. It's kind of our hub, it's kind of our title, it's kind of all-inclusive. Many people don't uh, study prophecy because they don't understand it. And that's a problem. Because it's going to be critical to be studying it as we move forward through the judgments of God. As we stop for this moment from Revelation, we need to go back and answer some questions that's going to help us as we dive back in to Revelation 7 next week. So, I have four questions and our passage today that I want to talk about. Are you ready? If you're ready, say I'm ready in the chat. All right, fill it up. I'll wait. All right, I'm not going to wait much longer. Here we go. Here's our first question. What's the purpose of tribulation? What is the purpose of the tribulation? That's a great question. I want to give you three reasons uh, for the, the tribulation, and I believe they come out of our text today that we're going to look at. Uh, they, I think, come out of other texts as well. The purpose of tribulation, or what we will call the day of the Lord, the time of Jacob's trouble, or the 70th week of Daniel, all those mean tribulation. They are threefold, and here's the first one. To fulfill the word of the Lord given in both the Old and New Testament. God is all about His word coming true. Both in the major prophets, Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, And the minor prophets, they're all prophesying of this day of the Lord. The book of Psalms, the book of Zephaniah, the book of Zechariah. They prophesied of Jesus himself coming. They prophesied of this day, this tribulation coming. Jesus himself in the New Testament spoke of it. Peter, Paul, and John all spoke of it. This was to fulfill the word of the Lord given. Tribulation is a time that fulfills the word of the Lord that has been given. But 
More importantly, it's to bring Israel once and for all to its knees. It's to bring Israel to its knees once and for all. This is a time that God is dealing with Israel to cause her to return in this great ingathering physically to the land. And by the way, this is happening right now in record numbers. And then he's going to refine them so that ultimately they will cry out, as Jesus said in Matthew 23, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in that moment, Christ will return. Step on the Mount of Olives and begin his millennial kingdom reign. Paul writes that during this time of tribulation, all Israel will turn to Christ in Romans chapter 11. And thirdly, to punish a world that has rejected Jesus Christ as Savior and King. Now, we learned last week, God is full of mercy, even in His judgments. And people are turning to Jesus, even in the tribulation period. Next week, we're going to begin a series looking at the revival during the tribulation. But the hardness of many who, who have turned their back on God will be those that Jesus treads out the winepress of God's wrath because they have chosen to reject God for their own way. So, let me ask you a question. Have you called on the name of the Lord? Have you called on the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation? If yes, you can, you can just put an amen in the chat. But if you haven't, why not? Jesus loves you so much. Jesus desires that you would come to him and be saved. Don't wait until the last minute. Settle that now. One day may be too late. You should be ready now. Jesus said it best. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Be happy. Come to Jesus today, right now. In fact, I want to pray for you real quick. That if you're struggling with, should I come to Christ? Should I give my life to Him? That the Holy Spirit will reveal to you that it is a good decision. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray for those that do not know you, that may be tuning in right now or may watch this later. Father, we pray that your Spirit would go forth in power and that we, they would call to you for salvation and that they would be saved. Do not harden their hearts. Let them come to you, Father. Have mercy on them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, what's the purpose of tri uh, tribulation? It's to fulfill the word of the Lord. It's to bring Israel to their knees. And it's to punish those that have rejected Jesus as Messiah, Savior, and King. The second question, like the first, well, why will the church be absent in tribulation? That's another great question. Again, I want to give you three reasons. Now, there's a lot more, but I just, for, for time's sake, three reasons. Number one, God told us so. God told us so. In 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, He shows us His plan. And I want to draw your attention uh, to these, uh, these verses in, in 1 Thessalonians 4. The day of the Lord is being poured out on, on His wrath on sinful men. And Paul told this church that God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. If the tribulation time is to punish those that have rejected him, to deal with the devil for who he really is and to reveal the false Christ, the church serves no purpose during this time. God has promised us no wrath for you. Your wrath, church, was placed on Christ at the cross whom you have received for salvation. 
So, so what happens to you? Well, we use the word caught away. We use the word rapture. We use the word I'll fly away, O glory. Uh, who's excited for that? I, I know I am. First Thessalonians says that the Lord will descend with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet, and the dead will rise first, and we which are alive and well will be caught up to meet him in the air so that we may be with him forever. God told us this will happen, and it will. Jesus told his disciples the very same thing, though. That's number two. Jesus said in John 14, in this beautiful picture of, of what he is doing in, in the look at a marriage ceremony, Jesus said in John 14, as they're walking toward the, towards the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, I'm going away, but if I go away, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And then he went on to say this famous verse. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And Jesus was saying to them, listen, I'm going away like a faithful bridegroom. And when I go away, I will return so that you and I can be together. And lastly, another reason I believe in the, in the rapture of the saints is God's given us examples throughout all of human history, especially in his word, that his people would be pulled out before the wrath would come. Before the flood, consider the righteous ones were Methuselah and Noah. Methuselah died, and Noah was placed in the ark and the door was closed. And only when that happened did judgment come. The dead died first, Noah and his family were saved. Wrath poured out on the earth. But not just Noah and Methuselah, consider Lot. God called Lot to leave Sodom with his family, because Sodom was wicked. He brought angels into his house. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, take up your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you'll be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the angels seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him, they brought him out and set him outside the city. Why do I believe the tribulation church or the, the tribulation will lack the church? Because God has told us so. Because Jesus has told us so. Because God's word always shows us what he's going to do. And he's given us examples throughout human history. Well, the third question is this. Well, it's not really a question, it's more of a comment. The beauty of God in his working with us. Our third point, the beauty of God in his working with us. One of the things that makes God so amazing, and I want to give you two things here is this. Here's the first one. God tells us the problem that we have, then God tells us the solution, and then God provides the solution before we can even figure it out for ourselves. So let me give you an example, because this is how God is. Sin, salvation. Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a problem, because when we fall short of the glory of God, we cannot be with God. Romans 6.23, the wage of that sin is death, eternal separation from God. Now, Christians don't die. They don't die an eternal death. Their bodies may go into the grave, but Christians always go to sleep, according to the New Testament, so that one day they will be with the Lord. There's still a problem. We have sin. We all fall short of the glory of God, and sin equals death. Problems. What's the solution? The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He tells us that. But he goes further. 
so that we don't have to figure out what this gift, gift is, he tells us. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Solution before we could even figure it out. Romans 10 says this, because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scriptures say, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Solution, before we could even figure it out. See, God tells us the problem. God tells us the solution. And God provides the solution before we can figure it out for ourselves. That's one beauty about God, but here's another. God tells us the future. God reveals the players in the cast even before they're born. And he does it and does it exactly as he said he was going to do it. Two examples. Example one, number one, Jesus. The birth of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of Jesus. Do you realize that before he was born, there were eight prophecies in the Old Testament about his birth? And at his birth, they were all fulfilled. Now, simple question. How many prophecies were made about you at your birth? Exactly. Jesus had the virgin birth, the town, the flight that they would take to Egypt, and more. Someone once said that to figure this out, to get the, the right perspective on, on, the, on this actually happening, not just one prophecy, but eight, it's like filling up Texas with quarters two feet high and marking one of them with an X and placing it somewhere in Texas. And then having Brent go to Texas blindfolded, reaching his hand wherever he could, and the likelihood of him pulling out the quarter with the X is the likelihood of eight prophecies coming true. But yet in Jesus it did. God tells us the players in the future, God tells us the future, and God causes it to happen. That's what makes him God. He says something, and then he does it. The, the one that I want to concentrate on today that he has said and he is going to do and is doing is the history of Israel from 500 B.C. until the time of tribulation as given by Daniel. The text that we read today is an amazing text. It's where I want to finish our time today. I want us to show us this amazing text in the Scripture. Now, 15 years ago, I set out to study this text and I was blown away. I walked away saying, if this was written by Daniel, this truly is the Word of God. And I am convinced beyond a shadow of doubt that Daniel wrote this as it was given to him by God. I want to show us how we get the, the year, seven years of tribulation in this. God's going to show us the Antichrist, broken treaties, seven years of tribulation, all of that. Great precision. God sets the dates. God goes forward with his plan. And if we read the Bible, we'll see that. Behold the Lamb. God has promised his incarnation. God has promised his death and his coming again. 
So the question is, do you believe that? Well, in the time that we have remaining, Daniel chapter 9. Let me give you a little history about the book of Daniel. Maybe you know Daniel from a song that you used to sing as a kid, or maybe you've read portions of the stories, Daniel and the Lion's Den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the Fiery Furnace. Here's the story. In 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem and took noblemen's kids. Daniel was probably 15, the son of a nobleman, when he was taken to Babylon, Babylon excuse me, to serve as a wise man for the king. What that meant was that he would serve in the palace and be a buffer between Israel and Babylon to convince them to follow the ways of Babylon. Now, we know that didn't work out very well for King Nebuchadnezzar because Daniel didn't do that. He and his Hebrew friends, once they came into the palace, were made eunuchs, which is a horrible thing for a 15-year-old. But God blessed Daniel for his faithfulness. He had many significant God events in the book of Daniel. Visions. The lion's den. We've already talked about that. God supernaturally rescuing his friends from the fiery furnace. Daniel was there when God's hand wrote on the wall and many angel visits to explain many things. Why? Because Daniel was faithful to God. Don't miss that. God allowed him to serve many kings. Daniel served the three most powerful men in all of history to his point. Nebuchadnezzar, Darius the Mede, and Cyrus the Great. And God also revealed the future to him. In fact, if you just take a quick look at, at the book of Daniel, chapter 2, we see Nebuchadnezzar's kingdoms and the kingdoms that were to come. God told him all about that. In chapter 7, we see the dreams of heaven and, and Christ receiving a kingdom. God revealed all that to him. In chapter 8, we see the visions of nations to come. Now, this chapter alone lets us see God's sovereignty. God laid his sovereignty out for him. He laid out the Medes and the Persians coming to destroy Babylon. He laid out Alexander the Great and the four generals who would follow him. He named, laid out the strong army of Rome and finally the revived army of the Roman Empire that would come in the last days. And then between chapters 7 and 12, God tells us his plan for the end. But not in a vague Nostradamus, psychic reader kind of a way. God reveals things detailed and exact because that's what God does. So as we dive into our text, let's get into our last question. Where do we get this idea that the day of the Lord would be seven years long this tribulation would be seven years long. For that, we need to go no further than the book of Daniel, chapter 9. Let's begin with verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, a descendant, a Mede, who was made king over the realms of the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonian Empire, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. What Daniel is saying there is he was looking at what he perceived to be the word of the Lord from a contemporary. Jeremiah and him were about the same age when they began. Jeremiah was probably in Egypt now, if not dead. And Daniel was reading from God's word, but he needed understanding. Because he saw that the 70 years that God had proclaimed to Jeremiah were almost up. So what do you do? Jan Daniel did the only thing Daniel knew to do. 
Three times a day, the scripture records, at least three times a day, he opened his window and prayed to the Lord. And so Daniel turns his face to the Lord God, seeking him in prayer and pleas for mercies that they would be able, the Israelites would be able to return home. He did it with fasting and sackcloth and ashes, and he prayed to the Lord his God. Now, for time's sake, we didn't look at verses 6 through 8, 19. You should look at that prayer. It's pretty intense. It's pretty awesome. But he begins to read God's promises, and he begins to pray. I have a question, because we can be somewhat cynical in our day. We have, we have a nation of self-made people, and we have a problem with prayer. Do you believe that one man's prayer can change anything? Have we become so cynical that prayer doesn't matter? Does God hear the prayer of one person and do something? James 5 says this, the prayer of a righteous person has great power or is powerful and effective. And I want you to notice this. Notice verse 20. He's praying, he's praying, he's praying. And while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sins and the sins of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking and praying, he was praying that Jerusalem would be restored. While he was doing that, the angel, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight. You should underline that in your Bible. Swift flight. Now, if heaven is beyond the farthest star, bear with me for just a minute, that's 10 times 10 to the 27th power, and Daniel's prayer was about five minutes long, that's a pretty fast flight. But notice what Gabriel says. He says, Daniel, I have come to give you insight. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell you that you are greatly loved. He said, when you started praying, I was here. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Now, what Daniel wanted to know was when they would be returning home. What God tells him is exceedingly abundant beyond what he asked or imagined. God is going to show him when it will start, when it will finish, when the Messiah will come, what they will do with Messiah, what will happen because of what they did to Messiah, and how it all will end. All in four verses. Look at verse 24. Gabriel is speaking, and he says, Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression." to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up both vision and profit, and to anoint the most holy place. Now, part of the problem in our translation is that weeks is a poor translation. It's not in keeping with the Hebrew understanding. I want you to understand that Daniel was counting in years, not in weeks. And the word actually means sevens. And that's important because, look, we think in, in groups of ten, okay? As Americans and, and really in our society since the Roman era, we think in decades. The Israelites always thought in groups of seven. Seven years was a unit. And that unit, which is a better way to describe this, was the first Sabbath rest. Seven times seven was the year of Jubilee. 
And that was important to Israel. We think in tens, they thought in sevens. So 70 weeks would be a problem because 490 weeks or nine years doesn't really work. But seven units, that's 490 years. So, right next to the word weeks, write the word unit or years. God is painting with a broad stroke first. He said, I have set aside 490 years to bring an end to all of this. And notice he says in this broad picture what this 490 years will bring about. In this time frame, he says, the purpose of this was to bring an end to Israel's transgressions. He says it right there in the text, to finish the transgressions. But he also says the purpose of this time was to put an end to sin. And then he says it's to atone for iniquity. By the end of the 490 years, all of Israel will have stopped their disobedience. They will stop their sin and seek atonement in the Messiah. And that happens in the second coming. And then he continues this broader picture. What happens at the end of this? The purpose of this time is to bring everlasting righteousness. It says it right there in the text. The purpose of this time is to seal up visions and prophets. To seal up means to put to an end. To seal up both visions and prophets mean that these things have all been fulfilled. And the purpose of this time was to anoint the most holy one in the most holy place. When does that happen? When all of Israel will look at the one they pierced and turn to him, and he shall reign forever and ever? That happens in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. All the prophecies of God, all the visions of God are yes and amen in that moment. He will be on his throne. The Holy of Holies will be his place. He will be King of kings and Lord of lords. And listen, Daniel just wanted to know when can we go home? God gave him more. God said, big, big picture, 490 years. My kingdom will come and we will be done with this earth as it is. It will be on earth as it is in heaven. But now God answers Daniel's prayer. Gabriel says to him, here's what you want to know, Daniel. It starts here. Know therefore and understand that from going out of this word to restore, excuse me, from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. So, question, do we know when that happened? Is that in the Bible? Do we know when, when the going forth was, was uh, said to go? You know, there's a book in the Bible called Nehemiah. Nehemiah served King Ahasuerus Longevitus. He was an evil and wicked king. In fact, that king himself built a bridge over a river, and when the river flooded, it tore the bridge down, and he had his army flog the river. He was evil. He was wicked. But as we read Nehemiah chapter 2, we see the answer to Daniel's prayer. And do we know when that, ha when that actually happened? Yes, we do. It happened in 454 B.C. Dan uh, Nehemiah, again, one man praying for God to do something, and God does something. In 454 B.C., actually the date was March 5th, 454 D.C., King Ahasuerus declared that Nehemiah was to return to Jerusalem and build the walls of the city. So, at that point, the clock starts, but we keep reading. It says, to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven units, or seven sevens. Seven times seven is 49 years. It took 49 years to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. 
Coincidence? I don't think so. But God doesn't stop there. Then he does something amazing. 500, listen, listen. 500 years before Christ, Daniel knew exactly where the Messiah would be and when. Notice it says, Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with square and moat, but in times of trouble. In other words, for the next 434 years, there's going to be trouble, but it's going to be built, and it was built. It was a beautiful city. And after 62 weeks, an anointed one. March 5th, 454 BC, God said, My kingdom will come in 490 years. In 49 years, you will rebuild the city, and 434 years later, the anointed one will be in Jerusalem. March 30th. 33 A.D. Do you know what happened on that date in history? March 30th, 33 A.D.? 483 years from the decree to what? Here's a hint. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O Zion. Shout aloud. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, and he is humble. And listen, here's your clue. Riding on a donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey. So do you know what happened on that date? Seven units of years, 62 units of years, 483 years, decreed that Messiah, Jesus, would ride a donkey on Palm Sunday. And what was Jesus' response? Luke 19, 1942. If you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. He's saying, you should have known I was going to be here today. The next day Jesus came back and he said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to you. How often would I gather your children together as hens and, and her brood under her wings? But you were unwilling. See, your house is now less, left desolate. That's an important word. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, does God tell us what's going to happen next? Yes. He says an anointed one will come and he will be cut off and shall have nothing. Now listen, how specific is God? The Hebrew word for cut off means to be executed like a criminal. God said, Christ is coming He's riding on a donkey, and then he will be executed as a criminal. Did that happen? Yes. Did he have nothing? He had no kingdom. He had no crown. He had no people. He had no home. He had no throne. He had no tomb. He had no clothes. In fact, the Roman guards gambled his clothes away. Yet, isn't this amazing? That God's word is showing us his return, a return to the city, the city would be built, Messiah would come, crucifixion would happen. But it's really important we keep reading. If you're looking at this, you might be thinking, well, there should be seven more years, right? Yes. 62 plus 7 is 69. God said there's 70, 490 years. But has his kingdom come? No. Why not? Well, Jesus himself told his disciples that God was taking Israel and setting them aside because of their rejection of him so that the gospel could go forth to the world. That's, that's mercy right there. 
Think of it like this. Think of it like a giant clock that has 70 ticks on it. So far, 69 of those ticks have been ticked off. But God has unplugged the clock for mercy's sake. When will we plug it in again? The rapture. The reason for the tribulation was to fulfill His word, to deal with the nation Israel, and to deal with sin. But God isn't finished telling Daniel what's going to happen to his people, and I find this fascinating. I was telling my son this on Thursday. We were kind of walking through this text together. He said that a people of the prince who was to come, who is to come, now who, are the, who is the prince that is to come? We looked at that last week. He's riding on a white horse. He has a bow. He's making peace and conquering the world. He's the Antichrist. Notice, this is his people. It's not him. It says, the people of the prince who is to come. And this is the, the Roman Empire because he comes from a revived Rome, according to the, the Scripture. Notice that they will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with the flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Underline that word, desolations. Has this happened? Yes. In 70 AD, Titus destroyed Jerusalem and scattered the people of Israel out of the land until 1948. He came like a flood. Question, what does the flood leave behind? Nothing but destruction. When he took everything out of the temple, he turned the stones on end. He took the gold that filled the, the temple, and then he leveled and salted Jerusalem so that nothing could grow and nothing could be there. But God also said there would be constant war around this land. Has that happened? Yeah. Since 70 AD until now, this one piece of land has had the most tension of any place in the world. Whether it's the Crusades or Hamas or even now Iran and its Hezbollah grouping that want to go after Israel. God decreed that. And then God used the word desolations. It's interesting. Prior to 1945, the Hebrew and Yiddish word that the Jews used when they said desolation was was the word for catastrophe or holocaust. That was the root meaning of the word desolation. Yet, you know, the holocaust has happened to the Israelites again and again and again, and God said, and Jesus said, it was coming because you rejected him. When will it end? When the clock of God's timetable begins at the rapture of the church. Faithful Jews are to look to this text and see that the Antichrist will make a strong covenant with one for a week. That's a unit of seven or seven years. And in three and a half years or half a week's time, he'll put an end to sacrifice. Halfway through, he's going to break his covenant. He's not going to allow them to sacrifice. He's going to set up his throne in the house of God and it's called the abomination that will come to make desolate until the decree is poured on the desolator. God's final word to Daniel was, you're going home. Here's what's going to happen. And in the end, I'm going to win. And I'm going to set up my kingdom. My kingdom will come. My will will be done. 
It's an amazing, amazing text that answers so many questions for us. This week as I looked at this, I said, what can we learn? What can we learn? And I want to end with this. We can learn that God has been true to his word then. Did Israel go home? Yes. Did Messiah come? Yes. Did he die? Yes. A criminal's death? Yes. Have there been problems since? Yes. God is true to his word then. He will be true to his word now. And he will be true to his word in the future. But God has everything under control. Listen, this pandemic is not the end unless God says it is. Live in such a way now that glorifies God. He's in control. Make this about loving God and loving others because he's in control and we know that. This text alone should say God is thinking so far beyond us right now in this moment. He is sovereignly in control. We are called to love everyone, not just to be intellectually right all the time. Let's trust God in this. Three, continue to center your faith and trust in Jesus' soon return, Christian. How? We'll place him at the center of everything you do. Just a moment, we're going to sing a song of commitment. Oh, Christ, be the center of my life. I want that to be your song for the week. Lastly, if you haven't turned to Jesus and you need a Savior, don't wait. Don't wait. God is, is working out his timetable on all of humanity. Trust him now. He's faithful and true to his word. Call to him while you are able. He's willing to save. Place him at the center of everything you do. He's faithful to his word regardless of how you feel. I had a boy tell me this week that he believes everyone's going to heaven. Is that true? No. Because God is holy. Our sinfulness is breaking his law. He keeps us at a distance from him, but he gave us good news. He saw you and your need and he made a way. He is the way maker. By faith in Jesus, your way to God, your, your truth of God, your life in God, Jesus Christ, can save you. Your job, admit that you're a sinner. Humble yourself now. Listen, believe that Jesus died for you, that he rose again, and that he made a way for you to come. And then lastly, confess your desperate need of salvation in Jesus' name. You can do that now. And I pray you will. Questions and answers in the four most amazing, incredible verses in the Bible. Show me that God is in control. His word is strong. His word is right. His word is true. And I need to place my faith and trust in him. It shows us a lot of answers to the questions that we may have. Maybe not all the answers at this moment. But it will show us. He has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And I pray that you will trust him this week. Place him at the center of your life. Let's pray. Jesus, we come rejoicing in who you are. We thank you for your finished word. We thank you that you save, save today. Holy Spirit, draw people to salvation, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. For more information about Harvest Bible Chapel in Cambridge, Ohio, check out our website at harvestcambridge.org like us on Facebook at Harvest Cambridge. You are loved.